Good morning, everyone. Welcome to what is going to be, I'm sure, an exciting talk around artificial intelligence and healthcare. And some of you in the audience have me uh, have heard me speak about that uh, healthcare is quite still behind when it comes to artificial intelligence. Looking at 100,000 publications uh, over the last 15 years, of which have uh, been implemented about 0.1%. So the good thing about this is we can only get better. And I think the talk that we are going to hear today will uh, hopefully give us some ideas uh, that may complement some of the ideas we individually or as groups have within our own institutions as we're trying to tackle and really try to think about how we can actually implement some of the artificial intelligence as tools to make us better healthcare providers. So it's my distinct pleasure to introduce Dr. Kave Safavi, who uh, is coming from Chicago. I was told he is a wholehearted Chicagoan, so we're not going to talk sports or anything <laughs> like that. Who is currently the Senior Managing Director at Accenture's Global Healthcare Business where he is responsible for developing and driving a growth strategy that differentiates the company's <clears throat> offerings for providers, health insurers, public and private health systems really across the globe, which is a very unique uh, uh, feature and I'm sure we'll hear about this. He joined Accenture from Cisco in 2011 and prior to that was uh, the Chief Medical Officer of Thomson Reuters and the Vice President of Medical Affairs of United Healthcare. Uh, he has done many, many things uh, over the last three decades as a seasoned leader and is currently also Board of Director of Exertia, which is a company that's trying to develop safe strategies of implementing medical apps. He's also serving at the advisory committee of the Buck Institute for the Research on Aging. And he, is, uh, he has two degrees. He's not just a doctor in medicine. He's also a doctor of law. So he got his uh, degree in medicine from Loyola University and his law degree from DePaul University of College of Law. And as we are at SickKids, I'm very happy to say that he's also a pediatrician. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. Okay. Great. Very good. Thank you. My mother would say I'm not a doctor or a lawyer, by the way. She'd say, uh, I don't know what you do, but I look you up on Google to figure it out. Uh, there we go. So um, artificial intelligence has really captivated our imaginations for a while now. The idea that computers can think and act like human beings uh, is a great stuff of both fiction and reality, you know, whether you think about Siri or Skynet. And it's specifically within healthcare. Uh, I will take you through a, a conversation today and make the argument that artificial intelligence is giving us the tools in healthcare to solve problems we have not been able to solve until now. And so its effect on healthcare is actually going to be quite profound. And I will also argue that it's probably different than what you might be thinking about because most of the narrative has been largely focused on artificial intelligence in the context of simply clinical decision making. And I'll take you through how I see it impacting healthcare, but it's far broader than that. Because if you look at how, what we've been struggling with, we've been struggling with what I describe as the 
the iron triangle of healthcare, which is access, affordability, and effectiveness. And it's an iron triangle because if you try to fix something, you break something else. So pick one. Part of the reason is because the tools at our disposal have been limited and the way that we provide healthcare has largely been focused on the simple model that you need to have a patient in contact with a caregiver in order to solve the problem. So if you step back and you look at the actual global context that we operate in, we have three big problems that we need to solve in every country, no matter how we're organized and no matter how we pay for healthcare. And what I will talk to you today about is why artificial intelligence actually gives us a path through those problems that didn't exist until now. The first problem, we don't have enough people to do the work. If you look at the global projections for healthcare services, uh, for healthcare workers, the World Health Organization estimates a 15 million person shortage. That's not just a problem in poor countries, it's a problem in rich countries, countries with low birth rates and low immigration rates. Uh, in Finland, where we're working right now, it's the second fastest aging population after the country of Japan. And one of the economists there that we work with told us that in his estimation by 2050, 100% of the workforce would have to be in healthcare to meet the needs if they kept doing it the way they do it today. So put everything aside, that is an existential, unrealistic proposition. The second problem is that the cost structure of healthcare is people dependent. And that is actually what drives the affordability issue. And I'm gonna take you through a little bit of analysis on that. But before I do that, the third problem we solve, we have to deal with is the fact that people's expectations of how healthcare should be are being defined by their lives outside of healthcare and the gap between how it is and how it should be is getting larger and what fundamentally people want is healthcare on their own terms. And I would argue that you can't solve the problem of getting healthcare to people on their own terms, where and when they want it, if the only tools you have at your disposal are a physical analog delivery system. It's, it's an impossibility to meet people on their own terms. But I want to take you through the economic argument because when we start to think about artificial intelligence, we really start focusing on what is the practical reality of how this is actually going to pay for itself. What I would say is the following. The traditional narrative for healthcare has been that if we could just figure out who the people are that are sick, if we could figure out how to get all the practice pattern variations out of the system, if we could figure out how to get the handoffs right, get people to follow doctor's orders and live a healthy lifestyle, we will have cracked the code on an economically sustainable healthcare system. And that is the common narrative. But I would submit to you that the data actually doesn't suggest that that's true, that there is another big problem. And we actually have to change the way we think about the problem in order to answer it. The problem we have is if you actually look at the cost of care in every industrialized country, you'll see a couple of interesting facts. It turns out that not the absolute cost, but the rate of increase in every country, every rich country, is basically the same. And in any country that is, uh, any rich country, the rate of increase is about one to three percent faster than the GDP in that country. So you'll see, for example, that the rate of increase in Canada and the rate of increase in the US over the last 18 years is identical. The annual rate of increase is identical. It has nothing to do with a public or private system or level of payment. Why is that the case? Well, William Baumol is an economist, and he first described a concept that he called the cost disease back in the 1970s. 
The cost disease was basically an observation about why healthcare keeps getting more expensive, whereas other industries get less expensive with the introduction of, of uh, technology and other sorts of things. And his argument is the following. Healthcare has primarily been a labor-based input uh, service sector. And in a labor-based services sector, the wages will never grow at a rate slower than the economy that they operate in. And then in healthcare, when you add an aging population that brings more demand with it, and medical innovation that converts non-disease to disease, you will always observe the rate of growth to be faster than the economy that it's in. Unless you figure out how to move work from people to machines in some fashion. In fact, in the United States, uh, the Bureau of Labor Statistics tracks productivity by sector. And what they've observed, and this is a, uh, essentially a 20-year look, is that the services industries in general have been losing productivity relative to non-services industries. And healthcare has lost more productivity than any other services sector. It has lost more productivity. Productivity is defined by the Bureau of Labor Statistics as a concept of um, healthcare services provided divided by the number of people necessary to provide that input. So from this perspective, you get an interesting picture. Earlier this year, the Bureau, uh, McKinsey economists took data from the Bureau of Labor Statistics and they looked at the question of how much growth in the economy comes from labor versus technology versus capital. It turns out if you look at the United States um, economic growth for the last 15 years, 25% of our economic expansion is attributable to labor. But if you look at healthcare, 99% labor. In fact, look at the top bar. Technology caused a loss of productivity of 13% in healthcare. It's the only sector that saw a frank loss of, of loss of productivity related to technology. This is not surprising. The United States has 95% adoption right now of electronic health records. And the evidence is that physicians have lost 10 to 15% of their productivity by the act of putting data into the systems, primarily through typing in order to capture structured data. While it's made healthcare safer, it's made healthcare better, from a productivity perspective, it's made it worse, not better. So we have a fundamental issue in every country, which is as long as we require humans to do the work, we're not going to solve the economic affordability problem. It will outgrow the economy that it's in, and it doesn't matter how you pay for health care, and it doesn't matter if it's public or private. That's the fundamental problem. And to solve this problem, you have to pull one of the levers that other sectors pull. You have to figure out how to move work either to your customer or to a machine or to a customer with a machine. Those are the, essentially the three central levers of productivity that every industry ends up pulling. Now, people have said, well, you can move it to less expensive labor as a short-term method, and many industries do that. The problem with that is over time, the cost of that labor starts to go up and the relative value of that shift is limited versus moving it to technology. But this is really the critical point. And here's the issue. The reason we haven't solved this problem in healthcare is because most of the work we have to do is non-routine. And we can't do non-routine work with the technology that had been available until now. But if you have technology that can learn for itself, then you can begin to take over non-routine tasks. And I'm going to take you through that in a, in a second. The last point I made is simply that expectations are changing because people's expectations of how healthcare should be are developed by their perceptions and experiences outside of healthcare. 
and the gap between the expectations gets bigger. And when the gap gets bigger, two outcomes can take place. The first is new entrants fill the gap by solving the problem that the incumbents choose not to solve. The second is regulation is basically put upon the delivery system to try to close that gap. But in both cases, what people are really asking for, and the research will keep reinforcing this, is that people want health care on their own terms, where and when they want it. And as I said before, you cannot meet them on their own terms if they have to come to you in a physical analog world. If you want to create services that meet individuals as markets of one, you're going to have to figure out how to create a physical and a digital model. And the benefit of artificial intelligence is that it gives us a technology that can learn and customize at the individual level as opposed to one size fits all. It is really un until we have technology that allows us to learn at the individual level without some kind of explicit programming, we really don't have the opportunity to solve this problem. So let's talk about why artificial intelligence is unique and uh, uniquely capable of solving this problem. And I'm going to make the point here that I'm talking about artificial intelligence and not just generally healthcare IT, because I've already shown you that general healthcare IT hasn't actually solved the problem. I want to talk about what AI is. I want to talk a little bit about how we think the economics of AI and the business case for AI will play itself out. And then I want to talk a little bit about how one actually begins to put AI into organizations. And then finally, I want to talk about what the meaning of work is for humans in a world where artificial intelligence is our coworker. First observation, we've already, as a society, reaped the benefits of non-artificial intelligence technology. If you just look at job creation, this is from, the, this economist published this, but this is out of the US Bureau of Labor Statistics, and this looks at job creation in the US over 25 years. And what you basically see is if you take jobs and you break them into routine and non-routine, and then cognitive and manual, you can see that all of the job creation in the US has been in non-routine tasks, whether manual or cognitive. Essentially, we've already started to replace routine tasks. Healthcare sits predominantly in the non-routine sector, and therefore we have not really benefited from the introduction of traditional technologies in order to address this issue. And even with artificial intelligence, there are things that cannot be done by technology. Those things on the right side, abstract manuals, tasks, creative intelligence, and social intelligence. So there is an upper limit as to how far the technology can take us. But artificial intelligence itself is really not a single technology. It's a constellation of technologies and applications, but at its heart is the capacity for the technology to learn for itself, whether it's, you're talking about deep learning or machine learning, shallow learning. The point is you do not need explicit programming in order to get the technology to amend itself. And the simplest consumer example that you have today is the, the uh, voice assistants that you buy at home, an Alexa or a Google uh, product. Both of those products are basically uh, technologies that have existed before, which is speech and language recognition, combined with artificial intelligence to allow it to learn such that you can open the device at home and on day one it can't tell the difference between the wife and the daughter, and in day seven it can, and nobody programmed it to do that. That is the ability of the technology to change itself without any explicit programming. That is the introduction of non-routine tasks into the technology ecosystem to solve a problem that otherwise would have required a different kind of approach. There are actually three universes of technology that are typically uh, 
swept up into the rubric of artificial intelligence. Unfortunately, much of what is in the market today that is called artificial intelligence is actually not artificial intelligence at all. It is, it is basically rule-based activity. And it's because artificial intelligence is sort of a marketing term, if you actually look at a lot of things they sweep up, you just basically see rules-based execution. The dominant corpus of technology that's available today and what I'll be spending my time on, because what's available in the market is what's called weak or specialized AI. This is artificial intelligence technology that is trained for a specific purpose. It understands the context of a specific problem and it solves that specific problem. Generalized AI is approaching a human being. It's essentially a generalized learning agent that can basically learn anything without any kind of context behind it. Most people think that that is in a very distant future. I put it at 10 plus, but that's probably optimistic. I mean, there are fundamental concepts that we don't even have from a computer science perspective that are necessary to get to this place. So uh, one of the challenges here is that in order to get artificial intelligence to perform, you need two different things. You need a, an algorithm, you need a theory, and then you need data to train it, just like a child understands a math concept but has to practice the math, do the problems in order to actually learn how to do math. That same concept exists with artificial intelligence. So if I wanted a piece of technology to replicate me and my judgments, in theory, I would need to present it with all of my life's experiences in order, in order for it to be able to have the accumulated wisdom, even if it had the underlying algorithm of my ability to learn. The likelihood of that being possible is zero. The data sets that we have are obviously considerably simpler than that. So therefore, this idea that even if we had the, the algorithmic construct, that we could actually train the agents to get the creative intelligence and the social intelligence of a human being essentially puts a data problem in front of us that's fundamentally impossible. So while it's an interesting theoretical concept, I struggle to even imagine that as being a practical reality. There are basically four uses for artificial intelligence, four conceptual uses that you see. Sensing, comprehending, acting, and learning. And if you step back and you look at how artificial intelligence is currently used in healthcare, the three most common uses, in order from large to small, are the following. The first largest use is primarily in the, uh, in the act of analytics. That is some combination of sensing and comprehending and learning, but it's primarily an analytic use case. This is, uh, if you look at a uh, modern data science organization in any leading healthcare organization, particularly the ones who are really using a large amount of data like you see in life sciences, uh, there is no reasonable data science organization today that doesn't have artificial intelligence and machine learning as a central tool, as well as a central skill set. Most of the organizations we work with, their data scientists, if their data scientists aren't schooled in modern machine learning, they're no longer relevant. And that's changed in five years. Five years ago, you could use a data scientist that was deeply schooled in traditional biostatistical methodologies and tools, and they could be a competent data scientist in healthcare. They cannot be an effective data scientist in healthcare today. The, re the requirements have moved so fast. That is by far the most mature corpus of use for machine learning and, uh, and artificial intelligence. The one that's coming right behind it is the use of artificial intelligence in order to allow technology to actually read documents. 
So the ability to, to uh, take an unstructured document, a digital, uh, a digital copy of a medical record, which is essentially nothing but a PDF. Today a human reads that, and we have huge amounts of energy and resources being consumed by people reading records and essentially converting what is an unstructured record into a structured record by interpreting it and then typing data out. We now can take natural language processing, we can add artificial intelligence technology on top of natural language processing and train it for a specific context and it can begin to read those documents and find the terminology. And that's already occurring in the insurance industry, that's occurring in the government sector to identify program eligibility as opposed to having humans read the records. That's beginning to occur in life sciences as people are trying to look through documents to try to find data to use for other kinds of research purposes. That is the next big area where artificial intelligence will start to augment some of these kinds of, of uh, activities. And the one that's coming right behind it and is going to be really important for frontline healthcare workers is conversational user interfaces. The ability to understand the spoken word in a way that actually allows us to make sense of it, what made Alexa and Google work for the home, is actually now occurring in the context of healthcare. Uh, so the ability to have a listening device in an exam room, listening to a conversation and understanding and capturing structured data in that conversation as opposed to requiring the human to type the structured data in is currently in market, being tested by startups, being validated. Now most of those devices are actually a combination of humans and machines because the humans are doing all the validation, but we expect the machines to keep getting better. And as that matures, that's going to have a profound effect on some of the work that we can do. But when we think about where is artificial intelligence going to show up, that's what we're beginning to see right now. From a benefit perspective, the majority of the written um, newspaper stories on the, on the benefit of artific artificial intelligence in healthcare have largely been in the context of clinical outcomes, better medical decision making. What I would submit to you is that if you think about three kinds of outcomes, affordability, effectiveness, and also the experience side of the equation, the other two are actually quite profound both the economics as well as the experience side of the equation. And in fact, what I'll take you through right now is research that suggests that the greatest opportunities and the greatest impact artificial intelligence will have on healthcare will probably not be in the domain of clinical decision making, but will be in the domain of these other two areas. Two years ago, our team looked from the lens of venture capital and private equity at the, business, at the market opportunities for artificial intelligence across a variety of companies that were getting funded. And we modeled out what we thought was the, the biannual value, let's talk about that as essentially the size of the business. It's the, uh, it's the investor's worldview of value. And uh, we actually looked at it by uh, categories. And if you look at the categories, uh, uh, the very top one is actually robotic assisted surgery. I'll talk about that in a second. But then you see virtual nursing assistant administrative workflow fraud detection. The bottom is where you see preliminary diagnosis and automated images. So not zero, but materially smaller from a market opportunity than those other areas. Why? Because the ability to go in and solve these operating problems doesn't require us to do clinical validation. 
It doesn't require us to be better than a doctor. It requires us to go and solve and take tasks away that humans are currently doing that you can actually train the technology to solve for, just like I described the reading of documents as an example. Let me give you a word about what's going on in robotic-assisted surgery and why that's so big. Most of the evolution in robotic-assisted surgery right now is software. So we solved the, the, the original robots were deployed where there was a human in one location and the operating, physical operating theater in a different location. And a lot of the original um, robotic-assisted surgery was largely solving physical issues. But the, if you actually look at the genesis of robotic-assisted surgery, the inventors didn't view the, pro, the breakthrough as being the doctor in one place and the patient in another. They viewed it as moving surgery from a physical to a digital mixed platform so that you could add information on top of the surgeon's hands to get a different outcome. And what's happening right now is the evolution of software that brings data on top of the surgeon's hands in order to change the outcomes. And the modeling suggests that that means that the surgeries, the, the risk benefit of surgeries gets better, the cost benefit of surgeries gets better, and effectively, and one could argue whether this is good or bad for society, but if surgery is safer and cheaper, more people will have problems solved. From the lens of the business of surgery, the markets grow bigger. Obviously, from a societal perspective, we're spending more money on healthcare, not less money on healthcare, as we make it safer and more cost effective, but that's actually how we get to that number. Last year, we actually surveyed healthcare leaders in eight countries, and we asked them their judgment on the impact of artificial intelligence on healthcare. And we gave them four choices, no benefit, limited benefit, substantial benefit, and transformative benefit. And I want to talk to you about the top two answers, substantial and transformative. I actually arrayed these answers based on the percentage of the time people answer transformative. Because if you look at the answer substantial, you can see from top to bottom that people, about half of all respondents said AI would be substantial whether it's better clinical outcomes at the bottom or operational efficiency or cyber at the top. But if you ask them whether it would be transformative, that's the dark part of the bar, you can see that by far their transformative responses are in non-clinical areas. 33% said transformative in operational efficiency, 21% in cost savings, 30% in analytic capabilities. Better clinical outcomes, 3% transformative, 51% substantial. No doubt it's going to have a substantial benefit, but the transformative benefit is actually in the non-clinical areas. And we can talk about why that's the case. But this is an important point, because again, most of the conversation has been on the clinical side versus on the non-clinical side, and yet as pe pe people in the trenches see the opportunities in many of these kinds of areas. So for example, the ability to read a document or the ability to listen to a conversation isn't really a clinical judgment issue, but it's definitely a labor issue. Here's the issue. Artificial intelligence does not take jobs over. Artificial intelligence takes tasks over. The critical way to think about artificial intelligence is the following. It is about tasks, and it's about taking tasks from human beings that the machine can do to create increased capacity for the human beings to do the work that only the human beings can do. This is some work from Brookings published earlier this year where they looked at a whole variety of jobs in our economy and the percentage of the tasks that can be shifted to artificial intelligence agents across a variety of them. Healthcare actually sits in the, what's called the medium opportunity task. 
In fact, you see here, healthcare support is 40% of the task can be shifted. And in their estimation, about 33% of the tasks that are done by clinicians can be shifted to machines. That doesn't necessarily mean clinical judgment. That's tasks that are performed by clinicians that can actually be shifted to machines. One thing we know for sure, you cannot replace a doctor. Fry and Osborne published this in 2013. The headline that was published in the, was 47% uh, of US jobs will be automated by, uh, by 2050. But if you actually read the paper, what they did was they looked at thousands of jobs and they asked the question, what is the probability of complete automation? Sort of similar to the top part of that bar in the Brookings study I just showed you. And then they, they actually characterized them by likelihood of complete replacement. So less than 1% probability of complete replacement. Look at some of the jobs in that category, and you see physicians, clinicians. Essentially, nobody believes that technology can replace a clinician. There are, however, jobs that you do not want your children to take. Those are the right side. Greater than 98% probability of complete automation. Some of them, like brokerage clerk and insurance underwriter, okay, but the one that I particularly like is the referees and sports officials. <laughs> if you do that for a living, you've got a problem. But what's interesting is, on a, I actually had this conversation with one of our leaders who uh, is a FIFA World Cup soccer class referee. And he told me this is nonsense <laughs> because his decision to pull a yellow card or a red card is so emotional and irrational that there's no possible way for a machine to actually replicate his judgment. So I guess, I guess there's hope for the referees. But this is a really critical issue because we have this conversation as if somehow we're gonna have a competition between doctors and machines. That is fundamentally not true. In fact, most people who are thinking about artificial intelligence would say that the primary role of artificial intelligence is to augment human labor through taking specific tasks over. And in most cases for the clinicians, in the foreseeable future, the artificial intelligence is going to be behind the doctor, not in front of the doctor. So it's not going to be the patient interacting with an AI agent. It's going to be the patient interacting with a doctor who's interacting with an agent to help make better decisions. That's actually how that process is likely to play itself out for as the foreseeable future. And even if you look at the people who are experts in human-machine interface, that's where they're really doing the research on. Notwithstanding Silicon Valley's hype on building artificial doctors, the, the, the academic research is actually sitting in the other place. We did our own analysis recently looking at the shortage of physicians, and by our estimates, about 10% of what a doctor does today can essentially be done by a patient themselves, and another 17% can be done by machines. These typically fall into two categories, either information gathering or routine advice. So when we talk about taking 30% of the tasks away from a clinician, that's what we're talking about, information gathering and routine advice, things that a technology or a patient with technology can do for themselves. So if we start worrying about a physician or a clinician shortage, one option is we're gonna try to keep educating more people in order to become clinicians. The math would suggest that we're gonna run out of people to do that with, given where our population is from a birth rate perspective. The other option is to create 30% more capacity by taking the tasks that don't need to be done by clinicians and have them done by machines instead. That's really the path for, for this conversation. 
Now we're already beginning to see the benefits of it now. In administrative tasks, this is work that Accenture does for insurance companies. In this case, we use nurses to review things for insurance companies. They have to be nurses because there's clinical judgment. We've already begun the automation journey, and we've discovered that the first two slices, which are basically rules-based automation, uh, We've, we're about 35% of the work that's being done today can be done by a machine, but that's rules-based. We think that another 20% you can use AI to get at, which leaves 45% of the tasks that have to be done by human beings. What's really interesting is it hasn't resulted in the loss of jobs. What it's resulted in is those people doing different work, and actually from an, from an uh, economic perspective, we're getting more output from the workforce as opposed to reducing the workforce to do, to do the tasks. We've actually done modeling here looking at an area, uh, different areas, and this is an interesting one. This is the finance function, and what we've discovered is the following. It's not just about moving tasks. It actually changes the nature of the residual tasks. So this is, this is looking at people in the finance function. And let's just pick in the middle there the role of financial analysts for today and tomorrow. What this basically says is the following. We can probably take 30% of the tasks that are done by financial analysts and move them to technology. But your workforce, that 70% that sits behind, it's not the same workforce either. It actually shifts to a split between fixed and adaptive. Adaptive workforce are people with specific expertise that need to come in at specific times. In this particular case, if you look at financial analysts, you need increasingly what are essentially data science activities. So it's not just going to be that I'm going to have 30% less people. I'm actually going to need another half of that to be different than the kinds of people that are doing the work today because the skills are different. So the implications for artificial intelligence is not just simply moving it to machines. It's changing the nature of the residual work that's left behind at the same time. So you have to keep both of these in mind. So the, 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 the business impact of artificial intelligence is quite profound when you start looking at it with this lens. So how do you start? How do you think about artificial intelligence? Here's what we've learned so far. Number one, it is absolutely fundamentally not an IT project. It is not an IT project. Just simple productivity as an objective. We have demonstrated repeatedly that you will not get productivity gains by automating an existing process. You will not get it. You have to redesign the process and introduce the technology to get a productivity gain. And that's, that's not just in healthcare. Outside of healthcare, we've seen this repeatedly. So if you really want to think about artificial intelligence, you have to start with clarity around what problem you want to solve. Is it productivity? or is it better medical decision making? You have to pick that product. And then you have to think about three separate attributes. You have to think about the process, you have to think about the data, and you have to think about the workforce. The data is a really important one. I talked about process. Data is really important because artificial intelligence is about data to train and data to, to actually enact. One of the challenges we have in healthcare is that most of our activities are not at all codified in data elements that can be used in order to be able to allow machines to start to do tasks for human beings. You compare that to other parts of our society, like the um, industrial sector, where these machines, where every transaction has been creating an enormous amount of data, and it's not just production of data. We produce a lot of data in healthcare, but we don't trap it. 
data that's coming off of, of information about where people are, what people are doing, where resources are, all of that stuff is going into the ether. For us to really begin to think about taking advantage of that, we have to capture all of that information and make it available to be used by these technologies. And I'm not talking just medical data. I'm talking about the totality of data that's created by the enterprise and its activities, because that's all the stuff that's going to get reused. So what we discover pretty quickly is that the fundamental rate limiting step in most organizations is really a data strategy. And to put a fine tooth on it, I do a lot of work with hospitals and they're asking the question about hospital of the future and they, they often want to have this conversation like somehow you're going to be able to predict the future of hardware and software. That is absolutely not possible. You think 20-year building, 30-year building, you're going to have a picture of something. We have hospital construction typically from planning to opening can take 10 years. Hospitals are tearing stuff out and replacing them before they even open because obsolescence occurs in that time frame. Not possible. The way to think about this, however, is data, because data is ubiquitous. And if you think about data, and particularly interoperable data, that gives you the dependency and the ability to have that data and to actually build is what gives you the persistence and the ability to actually ha uh, plan for the future. The last part is workforce. And I started to describe how work changes, because that's a very critical component here. Humans and machines, as co-workers, already exist in manufacturing. This term called cobot, it's a real thing. It's a, it's a machine as a co-worker. And the truth of the matter is that when humans have machines as co-workers, they need different skills. Paul Doherty is our chief technology officer, and he authored a book about a year ago called Humans Plus Machines. And he began to surface what is sitting in the academic research right now and people who are looking at human-machine interfaces. And they described a concept called middle skills. Middle skills are new skills that humans have to develop in order to have, interact with machines and get the most out of them. So for example, intelligent interrogation is the ability for a human to know what the right questions are to ask of the intelligent agent in order to get the answer back that it needs. That's not necessarily an intuitive fact, an intuitive act. That's a training act that needs to occur. So when I, when I take a task today that's done by humans, like the finance task, and I move some of it to AI, I have to change the way humans work in order for them to understand how to get the value out of that. I'm not just simply cutting it off. I'm actually creating a different kind of interaction. So I have to teach them those skills. The other side of the equation is, what do the people do with the time that's left over? That's called rehumanizing time. We don't fully understand that. Now, this is really complicated. So let me give you an example of how we don't even know how to begin to answer this question in healthcare. Every doctor complains about how much time they spend doing stupid things that doctors don't need to do. And then we have this dream state where, my God, wouldn't it be awesome if machines could do this work? Well, we don't have to go to that world to understand what happens when you start solving that problem. It's already been solved. There have been experiments done where tasks are shifted from doctors to non-doctors in order to free the doctors up to do only the work that doctors can do. And guess what happens? What do you think the doctors feel in that kind of an environment? They hate it. We gave them what they asked for and they hate it. You know why? The brain needs rest, cognitive overload. You cannot work at peak cognitive capacity continuously. So, we don't have any idea what a workday looks like for a doctor if we're able to take all the easy jobs and give them to a machine. It's probably not a continuous four-hour run in a clinic, though, because they're going to need a break. 
So we're going to have to reimagine a workday. We have no idea what that looks like. Here's why, a, here's why this becomes a leader's job. There's no answer to that question that you can take from someone else and get the guidebook and just implement. What is going to happen is every organization is going to be in, in now in the beginnings of a 20 or 30 year journey where they're going to bring technology in and they're going to have to continuously test and learn in the active environment in order to understand how to get the most out of the technology. Our challenge in healthcare is that we just spent the last 20 years extinguishing all variation from our operating model in the spirit of safety and reliable systems. We basically said no variation, we're going to measure our performance by process measures, we're going to make sure there's no deviation. Now I'm going to go back to the same workforce and I go, oh, sorry about that guys, here's how it's going to work. Stay focused on an objective, I don't know what the process measures are, and you're going to have to keep iterating. Because I can't tell you what the job looks. In fact, I'm giving you technology that will be different next week than it is this week, so there's no possible way that whatever the playbook is that I give you on, on uh, the first of the month is the same the first of the next month, because the machine got smarter in that time period. It's a very different business challenge. That's why this is not an IT problem. This is fundamentally an organizational leadership problem. And you've now introduced technology into the world in a way that is changing the nature of our work. That becomes the critical part of this problem. I'll end with this. So this is interesting, because William Mayo, um, one of the Mayo brothers, he didn't uh, think about artificial intelligence when he wrote this. He was thinking about pharmaceuticals and, and medical care. But the statement's so interesting. The aim of medicine is to prevent disease and prolong life. The ideal of medicine is to eliminate the need for a physician. He stepped back and he said, what are we in this for? What we're in this for is to make people better, not for them to come see a doctor. And he said that in the context of biologicals. We now have infotech. And we have the same question, which is, what is the purpose of our existence? Is the purpose of our existence for people to come to us, or is the purpose of our existence to get a better outcome? And I think this part of it is what gets us past the conversation about, is this about doctors, this is about machines, this is about control or power. This is really about society ultimately seeking a better quality of life. And these tools will find their way into our lives one way or another. But let me step back at the beginning. Healthcare has actually not benefited from information technology in the sense of economic capacity or supply until now. It has benefited in terms of quality of care. But we finally have at our disposal a technology that allows us to start solving this problem. So in my view, we are now, for the first time in modern history, we have some hope of breaking that iron triangle where we can actually address access, affordability, and effectiveness simultaneously without just picking one and breaking the others. So with that, thank you all for your attention. And I look forward to any questions you may have. So we got time for questions? Yeah, absolutely. We have time for some questions. So um, I will look and see whether or not you can push the button in front of you. And um, if it's a solid red, you have the floor. And I see right up the middle left. Yeah. Hi. Thanks for an inspiring and, and um, engaging talk. Um, maybe from in the context of what you were talking about, maybe we need to stop talking about a artificial intelligence and think more broadly in terms of decision intelligence. Mm -hmm. what, what are your thoughts on that? 
Uh, I think that that's uh, a fair statement. I think that's probably more fair in the context of clinical judgment, but when you start thinking about some tasks, it's less about decisions as much, like for example, the ability to read a document and prepare information for consumption, for machine consumption, that's sort of pre-decision. That's, but that's substituting for human labor. So, it, you know, rhetorically, it just depends on what you mean by decision. But I, I, I uh, thinking, um, as you were saying, top of hand behind in context. Yeah. You know, that, that, that word. Absolutely. Some people would say that it's not even called artificial, it's called augmented intelligence. It's basically trying to get past this idea of the machine versus human. Very good. Any other questions? Oh. Good morning. Good morning. Thank you for the talk. Oh. Good morning, and thank you for the talk. Sure. Um, I'm interested in the opportunity to release time to care. Uh, and I wonder, what, what have you done with the, the nurses that are doing the chart reviews uh, and now have, you know, mm -hmm. 10 to 20 percent of time freed up and you expect another 20 to 25? Do they get to go home early? Yeah. Uh, <laughs> So, uh, good question. So those are all people who have a only business function, they're not clinical. So the answer is that they do different business functions. Actually, what ends up happening, so the typical model for that is uh, that the machine actually starts to, to look at documents. It starts uh, essentially weeding out. It looks at more documents than humans can faster. It doesn't, it misses fewer things. And it starts to prepare for decision making for the nurse a series of yes-no decisions. So what ends up happening, the, the, the nurses actually, this is a rehumanizing time. In this case, they're actually not going home, but they're doing different tasks. So what we've been able to demonstrate is that the output of that work process is higher when you have a human-machine combination than a human alone or a machine alone. And it's largely because the tasks of a human are repurposed and simplified into a series of yes-no answers. I mean, there's a lot of interesting questions here. I'll just give you an interesting reaction to that. I was just uh, with uh, one of the leaders in human machine research at MIT, and she actually looked, uh, talked about how they have studied the charge nurse in labor and delivery in an academic university hospital for a year. And first observation they had is that that job is a harder and more complicated job than air traffic control in terms of the complexity of decision-making. So think about that, right? Because air traffic controllers generally have a 10-year job life expectancy, and these are individuals who will work for 20 or 30 years doing the same kind of a thing. And it's not amenable to, to pure automation. But what happens in that context and what they're working on is taking some of the tasks, the machine is able to take a set of tasks and reduce them to a bunch of, of specific an, of, of issues where it provides a, a, um, a recommendation for a simple task. And the job of the human is to decide yes or no to the machine's recommendations. And so what it's really doing is it's simplifying a set of tasks and allowing them then to, to spend more of their time on complex tasks. Question. Right there, that one's the solid, no, the solid right here, uh, right in front of you. Oh, okay, we'll go here and then up there. Uh, so, uh, you talked about how uh, data is so important for AI and machine learning. Yes. So, do you think uh, we should adopt a more centralized model where, you know, uh, we are more transparent in sharing data and uh, training uh, our machine learning models on that data? Oh, there's a lot of, there's a lot of 
nuance to your question. So the first question is most people think that the idea of centralized is a fool's errand. It's not possible. There's data is going to be continuously created in different places. So the answer has to be we have to figure out how to use federated data. For the purposes of training, the data has to be available to train the agent. Um, but that only needs to be resident for a period of time for that purpose. It's not like you need to have centralized data. The answer to what you're describing is now currently being thought about as primarily an issue of how do you make the data sets uh, semantically interoperable so that when you harvest them from federated resources, you can actually use them in some kind of a way. And there is a, there's a, a, actually an international standard um, called FAIR, which is about essentially taking data at the meta layer, data layer, making them uh, semantically interoperable so that you can allow data to stay federated. Because there's no scenario here where we're going to go to centralize that anyone sees. It's just economically not realistic. It's uh, politically not realistic. So we've got to figure out how to get to semantic interoperability to leave the data in a federated way. Training is an important issue, though, because um, you need to have data somewhere for training sets. And also, that, that, that raises two questions. The first is there are uh, privacy issues and consent issues around whether people's data, whether people have consented for their data to be used to train an agent that's not for their own care. This is ambiguous in policy right now. The, there are people who argue, well, of course, you know, it's for the good of society, why wouldn't you? And there are other people that say, that's great, but what's in it for me? You know, if you want my data to make a commercial agent, then you pay me for it and we'll have a conversation. We don't have, so we've got to solve that problem, this is the first problem. The second problem is that many of, these, um, many of these applications are actually sitting in public clouds, because that's where the companies are building them. And in many entities, healthcare data is not being put into public clouds for its own privacy and security issues, but then it can't make itself accessible to the innovations that are occurring. So we're having a very interesting conversation right now with people who are saying that in the spirit of, of privacy, I want it in my container. It's like, great, how are you going to participate in the ecosystem of all these applications that are being built and deployed in a public cloud? So this public-private hybrid containerizing is a big complicated issue uh, because that's, you know, that's where the technology is being matured. Question up here. Yeah. Um, when you look at the clinical applications, that 3% of better mm -hmm. access and outcomes, as a physician, where do you think uh, your company is directing its time and attention? Is it seniors care, pediatric, diagnostic, emergency? So um, where most of that, if you actually look at where most of the energy is for, the, for clinical, oncology and radiology and pathology. So where you have digital imagery, so that you can actually train a device. So you have to have digital data. And the other is oncology. And the reason for oncology is it's hyper complex. The field of oncology right now is involving, uh, you basically have the convergence of traditional um, oncology and immunology and to the point where, I'll, I'll make this a little bit exaggerated, but it makes the point that uh, it is quite conceivable that no two people's cancer treatments identical. And in order to decide what the right treatment is, it, it, the complexity of that decision is so great that it would far exceed any even smart human's ability to do it. So the oncologist is gonna have to be paired up with something to solve that problem. Those are the three where you see the most money being put in. Okay. So thank you very much. Uh, the question was, if you think about prevention, or oh, sorry, reducing the workload on the healthcare as a system, yeah, in terms of patient flow, how big you think or how feasible it is for AI to impact 
um, patient self-care as well as second prevention instead of treatment? Uh, so great question. This is part of the idea of patients take doing for themselves. Um, so right now we have some of that information available right now in uh, what I would describe as um, uh, acute urgent symptom management. Uh, the, uh, I would say that the, we can certainly do a little bit to boost that, but it's not clear whether or not we're going to really profoundly affect the consumption of, hum of, uh, of resources. Most of the evidence of self-service hasn't been that it's reduced the consumption of physical care. It's, augment it's actually expanded self-service care, and it's probably resulted in at least higher level of patient satisfaction. It hasn't affected the trajectory of healthcare costs at all. Uh, and that's not unusual, actually, um, because here's the problem is um, if you have a real illness that needs a real doctor, the agent isn't going to solve the problem. It might let you know for a fact that you need to go or not, but it's not going to change whether or not you need to go. Um, and what it, oftentimes you see is that um, if you just look at uh, patients themselves, they have specific preferences around how they want to interact for common symptom care. I'll give you an example. A study was published earlier this year in the United States looking at how what, patients' preferences for sources of care for common urgent conditions. And in this particular community, they had multiple sources. They could go to their own doctor. They could go to an emergency room. They could go to an A&E or an urgent care. They could go to a retail clinic, so, but it's not their doctor. So go see a doctor in an office, but not your doctor. They could do a virtual conf conversation with a doctor on the phone, no examination, or they could do self-service. And they, by condition, they actually asked these individuals what setting they would prefer. And what they found is that the answer to that question is actually condition-specific. It's not like I generally would go here or there. So, for example, what they found is that if you had a child with diarrhea, you wanted to go see the child's doctor. That was by far, not any other option, the child's doctor. But if it was you with the same problem as an adult, you didn't want to see any doctor, you just wanted information on the internet to treat yourself. <laughs> so. I want to follow up on the clinical versus operational divide. Um, Given, the, given that healthcare outcomes are dependent on how well our healthcare processes are operating, even though they may not be explicitly clinical, uh, and given the extent of kind of tasks offloading that you highlighted, right. do you suspect that we're going to run into some regulatory problems down the line where uh, even though we've cleanly defined certain things as operational, if they're associated with better outcomes or better access, that regulators might be actually interested in looking at these as non-operational tasks? Um, so that's a fair question. I think the rubric for most developed countries is still is the intended use to diagnose or treat. And as long as the intended use is to diagnose or treat, you can't escape. What most people have, and I don't think the operational issues have been problematic because the way most people have solved that problem has basically been it sits behind the doctor. And if it sits behind the doctor, then it's a little different. The challenge is if it's exposed directly to the patient. That's when it gets a little bit messy. So most operational things don't really hit up against that. We get where we get really, where people are really running the fine line is when they're building applications where it's direct consumer interaction and they're calling it coaching. And it's getting smarter and smarter and it's maybe gonna cross the line on diagnosis or treatment. I think we have time for one more. People push your button and see who gets it. Oh, we're up there, that's our last question. All right. Right there. Oh, I see the, yeah. Hi. Um, it's, a, it's a nexus. It's a train that's not going to stop the AI. 
But can you speak to uh, the downsides or the dark side of AI? Well, there's, yeah, I mean, I think there's a bunch of interesting issues. So there's a concept called ethical AI, which is broadly in the, uh, in the dialogue right now. Uh, and that has, uh, there's an issue about um, whether the AI itself is responsible, because ultimately, you know, the human trainers decide what purpose they want. So um, ethical AI needs to be responsible, and there needs to be transparency about your intent. In fact, people have demonstrated that if AI's intent isn't clear, then, um, then the users won't use it. So for example, if I'm a health insurer and I want to give a decision support tool to somebody, and that's not clear whether the intent is about cost or the intent is about quality, no one uses it. Um, so you've got an issue around explainable that's uh, uh, responsible that's pretty critical. Also there's an issue about explainable or transparency. What we've described, for example, workers won't use technology as a coworker if they don't understand what the underlying logic is. That's already been demonstrated outside of healthcare. So we have to make it explainable to the people who are interacting with it, separate from the issue of responsibility. And then there's the interesting issue of bias in the data. If you train this data set with information, it's a limited by its nature limited, then, the out, then it's going to continuously repeat that error. It's already been demonstrated in healthcare. For example, in the US, we have evidence that practice patterns for African-American minorities is not standard of care and hasn't been for a while around things like breast cancer. If I take the data set, the historical data set, and train an AI agent, it will perpetuate that discrimination. So you, you, it is an absolute limitation of the data set and one that needs deep awareness, which is why there's a lot of concern that you can't take a clinical judgment AI agent without controlling for that. The, most of these reasons become much more critical on the clinical side than they do on the operational side, which is part of the reason why you see more operational than clinical sorts of things. But you're absolutely right, and most people would argue that if you don't solve the responsible AI question, you're not gonna get advancement. It's so important that in our own company, our general counsel left the job of general counsel to build out the role of stewardship and responsible art, um, artificial intelligence for our company as well as for the customers that we serve, because it's a rate-limiting step. Thank you. Uh, thank you very much. Uh, as you're packing up, our next breakfast with the Chiefs is December 5th with Hartley Stern, who is the uh, CEO for the Canadian Medical Protection Agency. Thank you, and have a good morning.